And we are continuing on the book of Romans. We're in chapter 7 this week. And the title of the sermon is, The Struggle is Real. Boy, the struggle is real, isn't it? It's a struggle to just get through life sometimes. It's a struggle to be a Christian and please God all the time. We're going to see in chapter 7, Paul you know, is, just got through with chapter 6, talking about uh, how we are new uh, creatures in Christ, and we have all this uh, fantastic uh, victory in our lives, and we were once dead in our sins and our trespasses. We have been made alive in Christ, and now he's going to give us kind of a little realistic balance here to just think through this. What I was, as I was thinking about the struggle being real, uh, I thought about first world problems and how we... <laughs> Sometimes in our society, you think the struggle is real. Here's somebody who thinks the struggle is real. It's pretty tough when you got to fry bacon with a, a straight iron or straightening, straightening iron, whatever that is. The only reason I know that's a straightening iron is because my wife and my daughter cut hair. Otherwise, I wouldn't have any idea what that was. It looks like a giant stapler to me. And then, of course, here's a guy with a lot of ingenuity. Just has to have air conditioning in his car. I think the only thing that would have made that better would be a big giant roll of extension cords on the back so that he just kept it plugged in. That would have been cool too. But listen, the struggle is real and it's a lot more serious than those kind of things that we see. Instead of like I usually, I read through the passage and then we come back and take it a little apart kind of piece by piece. Today I'm just going to take it apart piece by piece as we go. It's a fairly long passage. We're going to do the whole chapter today and I want us to get through that in a timely manner. And so let me just start with this first point. First, we see here in chapter 7, Paul tells us this, that we are released from the dead law as if we were a widow. He is going to give us an analogy here uh, for those who are Jews who think that, or, or, or were Jews that have become Christians, who still think the law is part of the gospel. Uh, let's look at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Here's what it says. It says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. If you remember that the book of Romans is a, uh, a letter that he has sent to the churches in Rome, not a particular church, but to all the churches in Rome to be circulated. It's a circulation letter. It's a circulatory letter that he wants to be read in all the churches. And so he's realizing that some of these churches may have uh, only a few and some may have quite a few people that were once Jews who have become Christians. And remember, for years in the book of Acts, there were Jews converting to Christianity that wanted to kind of mix and match, match Judaism and the gospel of Jesus by adding the Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments or circumcision or festivals and traditions of Judaism to the good news that Jesus died for the sins of the world. Paul would have none of that, folks. Listen, Christianity is not Judaism on steroids. It is not that. It is a whole new thing. 
Uh, Paul wouldn't have that. So he begins another discussion about the law. He chooses this word picture to help the former Jews to understand what has taken place. In the same way that a woman is released from her marriage vows when her husband dies, so we are released from the law because it is dead. A widow is then free to make a new marriage with another man. And we have, in a sense, become married to Jesus, which causes the law to be dead to us. While we were under law... Our bodies were alive to bear fruit for spiritual death. But now, as he talked about here, and also in chapter 6 quite a bit, we are alive in Christ, and now we can bear fruit for righteousness. So he says this, He knows they'll be wondering, so why the law at all? I mean, wouldn't you ask that question then? If, if, if then we have, have come to know Christ as our Savior, for those of us who have done that, uh, why does the law have any purpose at all? What's the purpose of it? What's the meaning of it? Why do we pay any attention to it at all? And Paul wants to answer this question. It's a good question. And so he starts with this. The law reveals sin. Look at verse 7. He says, what, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, had not said, you shall not covet. Think about this. When I was a child, I would go with some friends who, whose parents played tennis. And we would go out to a tennis court and we would hit the ball around. And I didn't know any of the rules. We just kind of you know, let the ball bounce two or three times then hit it over the net or at least try to. It bounced a couple of times, hit over the net. We didn't pay attention to the lines. We didn't pay attention to really any of the parts of the rules of tennis. It just went kind of everywhere. We just were hitting the ball. But then someone explained the rules to me. And all of a sudden, the rules defined for me what is acceptable and what is not when playing tennis. It created the boundaries. It created a different view of what to do when I went and played tennis. So the law, guys, is, is kind of like that. The law is kind of like that. What Paul's saying here is, listen, uh, before, uh, I, I was kind of naive, I was kind of, I mean, I had my conscience, but I was kind of naive to what was really sin. So is the law bad? Is the law itself sin? No. It simply reveals our sin. It makes it obvious to everybody what it is. You know, we'd like to think that everybody has the same ideas about right and wrong, right? But it's clear from our culture that that's not the case at all. In fact, it's not even close. So who gets to decide right and wrong? There is a right and wrong. We can't all define right and wrong for ourselves. So who gets to decide? Is it, is it the collective culture? Is it the vast majority of any given time or moment that gets to decide what's right and wrong? Is it the conservatives? Is it the liberals? Is it politicians? Is it religious leaders? Somebody, somewhere, has to be the final authority for right and wrong. And God is. Folks, whether people want to acknowledge it or not, God gets to determine and has determined what is right and what is wrong in the universe. And everybody has to live under that law. The law of God reveals to us what is acceptable and what is not. It's interesting that Paul chose here the 10th commandment 
to not covet. I don't know if you know a whole lot about the Ten Commandments, but commandment number 10 is very different than the other nine commandments. Commandment number 10 is the only commandment that is an inward thought and attitude. It's not an action or a behavior. Think about that for a minute. So the the commandment, do not commit murder, is an action. It's a a behavior. Don't kill someone. Don't kill an innocent person. Don't commit murder. Coveting is the act of wanting something something that is not meant to be yours. It could be a car. It could be a house. It could be a meal. It could be a spouse. I feel like I'm cat in the hat here. You know, I I didn't mean for that to rhyme. It just came out that way. I guess I've been reading my grandson's too many books. But listen, folks, it could be anything. If we, want, if we see something and we want it and it is not meant to be ours, we're coveting. That's something in here, something in here. And Paul uses this specific commandment because he wants us to understand that it's a terrible sin that most people maybe never see or would not see on their own. But it's God's law. And it's revealed to our hearts through his word and through the law. So folks, the law reveals sin. It makes it clear to everyone, whether they want to pay attention to it or not, what is and what isn't right and what's wrong. Then he says the law does not only reveal sin, but it also ignites sin. It ignites sin in our hearts and our behavior. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, but sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. You know, before the law was given, we were naive to live by our own conscience, but the law not only revealed our sin, but it now clearly defines it and stirs it up in us. What are we just dying to do when we see this sign? I don't know, maybe I'm the only person in the room. Man, when I see that sign, I gotta go touch it. I gotta go see if it's really still wet, right? Laws and rules are like that, aren't they? We've talked about it before, but if you tell a child, listen, you can't have any cookies before dinner, what do we do? 30 seconds later, we turn our backs, we turn around, and we see they got their hand in the cookie jar. We've told them not to do it. Maybe they weren't even thinking about it. But once we tell them not to do it, it stirs up something in them that they want it, right? That that appeals to our fleshly nature. We talked uh, last chapter where Paul was talking about uh, uh, being either a part of Adam's family or being part of Christ's family. We are all born with this sinful nature in us that wants to do our own thing, that wants to do wrong. And when the law comes and says, hey, don't do this, we are driven to go do it. So the law not only reveals sin, but it ignites it in us. You know, Paul is self-aware enough to realize that the law didn't only define what sin is, it stirs this sinful nature in us and causes us to feel a sense of excitement when we operate outside the rules, right? We'll talk about that more here in a minute. So, Then the question is, so does that mean the law is bad? No, the law is holy, the law is good. Look in verses 10 through 12. It says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, 
deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It would seem that the next logical question is, is the law evil then? No, the law isn't evil. It may reveal and ignite our sinfulness, but our sin is still our sin. The law doesn't drive us or force us or make us to sin. We simply choose it. We got to own it, folks. We got to own it. And by the way, I think it's really important for us to call it what it is. I hear people occasionally saying to me when they're talking to me about something, hey, listen, I've, I've just made a lot of mistakes. They, they really have a hard time just saying, listen, I've, commit, I've committed some really bad sins. We, we just have a hard time saying that. But folks, the Bible doesn't teach us that we're mistakers. Okay? We aren't mistakers. We are sinners. We are sinners apart from Christ. And so we need to really acknowledge it that way. Paul says here that sin deceives us. How does it deceive us? Well, it seems exciting and fun on the surface, doesn't it? And it promises happiness at the time, which is really cool. What happens afterwards? Guilt, anxiety, frustration. We excuse our sins by saying things like, but God wants me to be happy, right? I mean, yeah, I know it says it's wrong, but... This really makes me happy, and God wants me to be happy, right? Folks, let me just say this, and, and hear, me, hear me clearly. God is not at all interested in your happiness. Not one bit. We have this idea, we have, we have made this God of our own, that all he wants to do is provide us with unicorns and rainbows and make our life happy. And that's not how the world works. And that's not who God is, because he is not interested in making, happy, uh, making us happy. He is interested in making us more like Jesus. And he will do anything possible to help us. It's just like your children. Do you live to make your children happy every single moment of every single day? And if you do, they're going to be spoiled, rotten brats when they get to be adults. No. You've got you've to create some disappointment in your children at times, right? They, they can't be happy all the time because they just, you know, they just want to do what they want to do. And that's not good for them. We are like that too, and it's not good for us. We convince ourselves sometimes that sin is no big deal. Oh, okay, well, I may have done this, but I know a guy who did much worse than me. Come on, folks. We, we know in our hearts that that's not right. The reality is God's law is holy and righteous because it reveals our sin. And it should cause us to realize that we cannot fulfill the law and thereby drive us to Jesus begging desperate for a Savior to save us from ourselves. You see, when we read the law, when we read the Ten Commandments, and we realize what we've done, and I realize the numerous times I've been disobedient to my parents, the numerous times that I've lied through my 55 years, the number of times I've done this and that and this and that, and then coveted, wanted something, didn't even have bad behavior. I just wanted something really bad that I didn't have any business wanting. That's a really long list. You see, what the law should do then, folks, is drive us to the place where we say, 
God, help me. God, help me. I can't stop doing this. I can't be perfect. I am desperate, desperate, desperate for somebody to save me from myself because I just can't always do right. You see, it should drive us to Jesus. It should push us toward him. It should prepare us to run to him. Because once we see the law for what it really is, and we see how it reveals our sinfulness, we understand and acknowledge how it ignites this passion inside of us, and we realize how good and holy the law itself is, but how sinful we are, we should be running, looking for a Savior. And folks, God gave us one. God saw us in this predicament, saw that we were sinners, and sent his son Jesus to die for us. He lived a perfect life, gave his life on the cross as payment for our sins. And by faith, we can put our faith and trust in what he did on the cross to pay for our sins, and he will save us from ourselves. He will save us from our sinfulness. He has paid the penalty already. All we have to do is acknowledge and accept it as payment. And then he rose three days later to prove he's exactly who he said he was. Folks, the law should drive us to him. It should drive us to him. Paul spends the rest of chapter 7 saying that the spiritual mind wars against the sinfulness of our flesh. This is exactly where we see this struggle being more than real, but a daily thing, a reality check for us, that it's part of our lives. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 13 through 25. It says this. Did that which is good then, the law, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a, a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul's saying the struggle is real, folks. By the way, there's some controversy over this passage. Even in the Christian, you know, God-fearing, good people, good Christian, Jesus-following group of people, there's a little bit of controversy over this passage. Some believe that Paul is talking here about his struggle before he became a Christian. 
But I believe, as I think most theologians do, that Paul is talking about his current situation as a believer. Here's a couple of reasons why I believe that, just so you can understand that. He was previously talking in this passage in the past tense and has now switched to talking in the present tense. He's saying, I'm doing this now. I'm doing this now. I'm doing this now. He also talks about the desire to do right according to God. The war that goes on between his mind that wants to do right and his flesh that wants to do sin. Now, before we're Christians, before we give our lives to Christ, we have no real desire to do what is right except what is right in our own eyes. And there's no war going on. Listen, before I became a Christian, uh, my mind and my body and my flesh, they were all in concert with one another. My mind wanted to do it. My flesh went and did it. I was in total and complete unity with myself. There was no war going on. Our mind and our flesh are in agreement before we come to know Christ as our Savior. But Paul's describing this horrible war that is going on inside him right now. It's the war of the mind, wanting to please God and do right. And then the flesh, still with Adam's sin gene, wanting to produce sin. Remember we talked a couple of weeks ago, I think in chapter 5 or chapter 6, about how Adam's uh, kind of, we have this kind of sin gene, uh, kind of like the gene to have blue eyes or brown eyes. We get it from Adam just because we are sinners as we're born into this world. We are already sinners. We have the desire to do sin. And the, you know, I mean, as soon as kids are old enough to do something, what are they doing? They're misbehaving. They're disobeying. Okay? And so, listen, we, we just have to recognize and realize that we are sinners by birth. And so this, this, this birth flesh stuff in us doesn't just disappear. In chapter 6, Paul told us how we were free from the law of sin and death, free to belong to God and produce righteousness, right? He said we're no longer captives or prisoners or slaves to sin, forced to do wrong because our sinful nature and our, our inability to choose right it was just forcing us to do wrong all the time. He said we have the power now, belonging to Christ, to choose rightly. Is he now going back on that? Is he now changing his mind? Is he, is he saying that wasn't really true? No, he's not. He's simply saying that now we are a God-directed mind and heart that want to do right and can do right if we choose it but we're still stuck inside a body that still wants to do sin all the time. Fact is, we can and should choose to simply stop sinning completely, but we just don't seem to do it. Let's talk about this for a minute. What we've seen in the last two chapters is when Christ comes into our life, every single time we are faced with a temptation, we're walking along the road, here's a temptation, we have a choice. Do what we want, do what God wants. Well, before we give our lives to Christ and we're just in the flesh doing our own thing, we always choose what we want, most always. And, and now when we come to this why in the road, we give a choice. And with the power of God in our lives, with the Holy Spirit living in us, uh, and with the power of Christ, we can always choose, when we get to that spot, we can always choose to do what God wants. But we don't. That's the reality of life, living in a sinful body. We can do it, but we don't do it. You know, some people uh, who aren't Christians think that we come in here every Sunday and and we all pat each other on the back 
tell each other how wonderful and perfect we are now that we're Christians. But the reality for us is, if we know anything at all, while we want to do right, and our mind and our heart is to do right, I would guess that nobody who's a follower of Jesus wakes up in the morning and says, hmm, I wonder how much sin I can do today. We want to do right, but the reality is we still continue to choose wrongly. Listen, Paul laments over this. He says, I I can't seem to do what I want, and I just won't stop what I don't want to do. I can't can't seem to do what I really want to do. Listen, the things that I know God wants me to do, I just can't seem to always do. And the things I know I shouldn't do, I just can't stop doing. And he says, wretched man that I am, he's like, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Christ has died for me. He's given me power over sin, death, and the grave. And I can't do the right thing. What is wrong with me? But then if you look what he says right after that, it's really important. He says, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You see, folks, when we get to that reality, when we get to that place where we say, listen, I, I'm, I'm trying my best to follow Jesus, and I'm trying my best to do right, and, and, and I'm just I'm, I'm putting effort and energy into it, and I'm praying, and I'm reading my Bible, and I'm going to church, and I'm building good relationships with other believers who will encourage me, and I'm doing everything that I possibly can, and I still do the wrong thing. Not a mistake. I still just commit sin. What in the world is wrong with me? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for sending your son Jesus to pay for my stupidity and my poor choices and my sinfulness. You see, Paul's a realist. While he's a great theologian, he's a realist too. He says, my mind serves God, but my body still serves sin. By the way, in chapter 8, he's going to talk about how the mind must therefore take control of our lives. But this struggle between the mind and the body are real, folks. And I'm only 55, or to some of you it may be really 55, but it doesn't go away yet, hasn't gone away yet. How many times do we want to stop sinning in a particular way? We vow to God to stop sinning in a particular way. God, this is the last time I am ever going to do that. And yet we find ourselves right back there doing it again. Tommy Lasorda, the longtime L.A. Dodger manager, described the struggle like this. He said, I took a pack of cigarettes from my pocket. I stared at it and I said, who's stronger, you or me? The answer was me, and I stopped smoking. Then I took a vodka martini and said to it, who's stronger, you or me? Again, the answer was me. I stopped drinking. Then he went on a diet. I looked at a big plate of linguine with clam sauce, and I said, who's stronger, you or me? And a little clam looked up at me and said, I am. I just can't beat linguine with clam sauce. (laughs) Now, while that's funny and cute, it's kind of a real description of life. See, what he was saying there is, look, I've had some victories in my life. With God's help, I can overcome sins. I can can stop doing some things. I can become more Christ-like. I can make progress that direction. But man, when it comes to the linguine, I just don't ever seem to get a victory over it. 
Folks, that's the real struggle. I know we all go through this struggle and sometimes we feel helpless and hopeless. But with Jesus, folks, and with his help, we don't have to live there. We just don't have to live there. We don't have to live defeated and unable to make progress to be more like Jesus. I'm going to ask the band to come on up. We're going to end the service with a song this morning. But today I want to give you all a chance to respond. We don't do this a lot around here, but we do it occasionally. Give you an opportunity to respond. For those who are Christians, when the band starts to play and sing, I want to invite you to just come up and pray. And by the way, listen, I, I know Satan loves to play with our minds in times like this. He, he loves to say, oh, you can't go up there and pray because if you do, everybody's going to think you've got this terrible sin that you can't possibly get over. Listen, nobody's paying attention to you. We're all paying attention to ourselves. Okay? We're going to give you the chance to just come up here and pray. There's no magic about this spot, but there is something really specific about taking a step, moving, and saying, God, I need your help with this. I need your help to overcome this thing, whatever it is. Maybe you're even praying for a friend who's struggling with something that they can't seem to get over. Come and pray for them. Pray and ask God to help them to really, really, really get over it for the last time and become more like Christ. We also want to invite you today, if you've never given your life to Christ, to do that today. Listen, folks, none of us can make it through this life on our own. We are all sinners. We all fall short. And we cannot do anything to stop it. If somebody doesn't pay for that, we will. And listen, you don't want to do that. Trust me. You don't want to do that. So we're going to give you the opportunity to be some people standing up here in the front here in a few minutes. Just come to them and say, hey, can you help me to know Jesus? Hey, can you help me to receive Christ as my Savior. I want to give my life to Him. Or I want to rededicate my life. I've, I've been messing around and just uh, living this defeated life. I don't want to do that anymore. Help me. Can you encourage me? Can you pray for me? They'll do that for you, folks. I know churches that don't do this a lot. This is weird to us. But we want to give you an opportunity. I, I just think it's important sometimes to not just tell you what you need to do, but give you an opportunity to do it. Give you an opportunity. Not later. Not, you know, someday... But right now, so I'd like for you to stand. And as we can begin to sing and play, and you sing with us, we want to just open up this area, let you all come and pray, ask Jesus for help. Listen, folks, Jesus is calling you. Jesus is calling you. He is calling you to either give up your sin, or he's calling you to give up your life and trust him as your Savior.
cross as you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasures you found. Let's pray together. Father God, we just come to you this morning. And God, I know some of us in this room feel overwhelmed by the weight of our sin at times. God, I pray that you would help us as we were reminded this morning. God, even though the struggle is real, God, we can experience victory over the sin that remains in our life as we still live in these sinful earthly bodies. God, I pray that for each one of us in here, that this week we would be reminded about that, that we would remind ourselves, encourage one another, God, to to really live in victory each and every day. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. You are dismissed.